Hello, space fans, and welcome to another edition of Last Week in Space, the supercluster podcast that brings you all the biggest updates from the world of space exploration. We're actually doing a special episode this week that's going to focus on the world of fictional space in a way. We've had a few television premieres. Well, I don't know if you even want to call it television anymore, but a few premieres this week on Apple TV Plus, on Disney Plus, which went live yesterday. And uh, just a couple other shows that have been across the networks that are sort of science fiction. Today, we're joined by Chris Gebhardt, who's an assisting managing editor of NASA Spaceflight and a contributor to Supercluster. Chris is also a big film and TV fan, as am I. And we both are always talking about the latest in popular culture when it comes to space and science fiction. I think it's always a topic at Cape Canaveral and Kennedy Space Center, especially. I think, Chris, I don't know if you agree with me or not here, but I feel like the debate at Kennedy Space Center over the past couple of years has been between the Martian and Interstellar. Yeah, yeah, it has. Real quick, what's your preference so we can set the tone here? The Martian. Okay, and I would go with Interstellar. So that'll set the tone for this discussion. And before we get into it, we do want to give you some quick news because as Chris and I were preparing for this podcast, SpaceX sent out a statement regarding the static fire of the Dragon 2 that occurred at Landing Zone 1 today at Cape Canaveral. Chris, what's up with that? Yeah, so this is the big crucial test of the Super Draco abort engines where they had the failure back in April with the same system and they completed a full duration static fire where they lit those engines while holding the Dragon capsule firmly to the ground. SpaceX says that they, as well as NASA, are reviewing the test data and working towards setting a date for the in-flight abort test where this same capsule, after a bit of refurbishment to those abort engines, will be stuck on top of a Falcon 9 rocket and launched from LC-39A at the Kennedy Space Center on an in-flight abort test. So it's going to be an exciting day one. for commercial yeah. space again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's really exciting. And obviously, I think we've talked about it so many times on this show. This is that follow-up test to the one that where there was an anomaly on April 20th, you know, caused a little bit of a delay, but they obviously overcame this issue. And as Chris said on a previous episode, it worked in everyone's favor. And NASA was actually really pleased with the process and the outcome of figuring out what went wrong. So yeah, that was a quick update on that. And Chris, we had a successful Starlink launch on Monday, which was really great, really beautiful flight. Eric Kuna shot really cool photos for Supercluster. You can find those on our social media. Uh, Chris, I saw you shot a really crazy, you had a remote video and you had one from your vantage point, right? Yes, yeah. Awesome. So um, I had the camera, a nice tracking camera on the ITL Causeway on the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station that we used to track the rocket for our, the live stream and for a launch video. And then we had a remote camera as well set up there to take still photos, but also to take some up close 4K video and a really cool tracking shot of the rocket from inside the pad perimeter as it launched. It was so cool. And shout out to John Krause, who also did a really cool tracking video from the launch pad. One more thing uh, I wanted to... <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, one more, th two more things indeed. <laughs> okay, China. Let's talk about China real quick because they, they had another surprise launch. Oh Walk my gosh. Direct, so so they had they had two. One we at least knew what the rocket was and the payload was. So right. the Kaozhou 1A rocket launched the Jilin 1 satellite. This was a mission that was supposed to launch back in October, but suffered three scrubs and eventually got rescheduled to yesterday, very late in the day, Eastern time. 
But as we were preparing for that, there was this very weird NOTAM, which stands for Notice to Airmen. And that is basically the international designation for airspace closure notices. And this NOTAM revealed that there was going to be another launch from China following just three hours after the Zhilin-1 mission was launched. And the weird part about this was there was some, you know, there was some educated guessing on the NASA Spaceflight Forum that it was a Long March 6 rocket launching a Ningxia satellite. But no one could get that fully confirmed. And the NOTAMs didn't say it. It was one that kind of just totally snuck up on people. And we didn't actually get any confirmation that that was indeed the rocket and the payload until after it launched via some pictures and video that appeared on Weibo or Weibo. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Basically, the the China Twitter. Twitter Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So China kind of a surprise last minute. Hey, this Zhilin-1 mission is is back on the range and going to launch. And then a total like, what are we launching? You'll find out after. Anyway, moving on from real life spaceflight to fictional spaceflight. Chris and I have took some time to check out Apple TV+. Plus. I'm going to mix up all the names of the streaming services because... There's so many now, but... Oh my gosh, what is it? Yes. Yeah, yeah there's so many. <laughs> I know, it's Dis- yeah, it's Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus. Disney, yes. yeah, they're the recent ones. So this television show, the showrunner and the executive producer is Ronald Moore, who Chris and I are big fans of because of Battlestar Galactica and all the work he's done on Star Trek. And he's just an incredible writer and producer and director. And we were really excited to hear that he was spearheading this this television show for Apple TV Plus called For All Mankind. Now, the premise is the Russians land on the moon before Apollo 11 does, essentially winning that part of the space race. You know, we're Chris and I are going to talk about the first episode. But off the bat, I want to say that I love the show. It's really well produced. Um, I'm only a couple episodes in, and Chris and I are not going to spoil certain things. We'll give you our take and, you know, and, and our historical perspective, but we won't spoil anything because from what I understand, a lot of people have not seen the show yet. So I think there are a lot of binge watchers out there, and what Apple is doing is releasing the episodes once a week. So I think people might be waiting, which is it's fine. You know, these shows are sort of made like six-hour-long movies, 12-hour-long movies. So if people choose to watch them that way, that's their choice. So Although no spoilers. I, I kind of like the, the one a week. Me too. But, Me too. Uh, you know, I like something, something to, to anticipate. To yeah. 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 And I, I come from the era of me and my friends getting together every week to watch Lost and Battlestar uh-huh. and, uh, you know, Top Chef. But um, I, I yeah, come when, from that when era. Yeah, when you could not just, yeah, yeah when you could right, not yeah. just click. Yeah, I mean, like and Star Trek Voyager, D, you know, DS9 mm-hmm. and Battlestar right. were all like that for me. Yeah, right. you, you just had to wait. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, what is your take and your initial reactions to the first episode of For All Mankind? So it will probably come as no surprise to those who know me that I love this series. I'm actually two episodes in. I actually watched the second one right before we went live to record this. But I love it for probably reasons that people might find a little interesting because it's I don't love it because it's space. I love it because of all the cultural examinations that it does and sort of unearths in this, you know, we, we shoved a lot of societal qualms aside 
in the buildup of the Apollo program mm-hmm. and the race to beat the Soviet Union to land a person on the moon. And if that landing sequence as portrayed in For All Mankind was flipped and the Soviet Union got there first, what this series really is to me is all of those things that we suppressed and tried our hardest to bury our heads in the sand to not look at culturally just mm-hmm. explode out of the top of the volcano. So For All Mankind stars Joel Kinnaman, and I don't believe he plays a real character. A lot of the characters who have lines on the show are amalgams of other people, like a bunch of other historical characters kind of mashed into one person, which is really cool. I think the first real person referenced in the show was Poppy Northcutt. There was a young woman walking into one of the NASA centers. She says, hey, Poppy. I was like, oh, that's a cool reference. Yeah, and it's just like that one little one second slice of life in the morning. But yeah. Mm -hmm. But Deke, Mm -hmm. that's a real person. Deke Slayton? Yes. Yes, That is a real person. And he's featured in First Man in that film. And he's in a bunch of other, in Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, Apollo show. His character is like the anchor of the show. This character has been done before. I think he's really great. And the way they portray him in For All Mankind is actually, I feel like they stick within the parameters of historical accuracy. Like the decisions being made are similar to decisions he made during the real Apollo program. But, you know, I think the the television show, going back to what you were saying, Chris, about it, you not liking it because it's a space show. I don't even see it as a space show after watching the first few episodes. It's It's a lot of it's a drama. And it's about overcoming a lot of obstacles, both personal and social. At Supercluster, one of our earlier pieces was about the Soviet female space squad, which is a piece we loved and something that we're really proud of. And in the show, as the episodes progress, Nixon orders them to create a female space squad because of the the progress the Russians are making. They want to compete in all different ways. And like I said, we won't spoil the the specifics of it. But I think it's really interesting. And I think that you do see some old Battlestar Galactica, not the show and the story, but the way that Ronald Moore produces for television. I don't know if you remember this, Chris, but the paper in Battlestar Galactica, remember they, they yes. in, the, in the show, they went backwards in technology. So they got rid of computers and networking and everything. So they had they used paper to write on and stuff. And the edges of the paper were cut. Yes. As an inside joke as to how much corners they had to cut to produce the show. Now, I think that uh, Apple obviously has a lot of money to produce their first <laughs> round of shows. But I don't I think Ronald Moore's filmmaking is it's subtle. It's not overblown. There is, you know, and part of me, I, I don't know what I expected from the show, but there's very little spectacle so far in which terms of I, like what you're seeing. Yeah, which I appreciate because mm-hmm. so much of the story of, of space exploration, real space exploration Mm. is simply just not as popular. And of course, in an economy when you're being driven by views and clicks and stuff like that, right? It's, it sadly becomes this thing where, you know, people don't want to tell it because it's not going to be popular, but the real element and drama of the space program is not the rocket launching is not when there's a launch failure or, or a test failure. It's in all the things that had to come together from people to make those tests or launches possible. And, 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 you know, you can kind of relate this back a little bit. Last week, from when we're recording this, right, Boeing had their in-flight abort test or pad abort test, excuse me, for the Starliner, right? 
and one parachute didn't pop out. And mm -hmm. to a lot of people, that was the big dramatic visual moment. But the underlying story there was when they figured out that it was just an error. They didn't put a pin in. Right. Right. All the way. And, you know, it's that element of drama that, that I think Ron Moore especially yeah, it's human has level. an ability to draw out and and really make you feel for the, the person in the series when you hear like the Walter Cronkite-esque voice, right, saying, mm -hmm. you know, a Soviet on the surface of the moon. I mean, on the page, that is not a dramatic event. But right. when you start delving into, holy moly, that's right. what this is about. This is what this means, right? When you put it that in context line, of the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's really what, you know, what I said in my opening really intrigued me about this series, because having gotten two episodes in like you are now, Rob, there's a key figure, historical figure, and again, no spoilers, we're not going to give away who it is. But there's a very key figure, right, who in American history was incredibly instrumental to the success of the lunar program for NASA. Mm -hmm. But all of the sort of societal fears and questions that we at the time had about this person because of past affiliations were totally set aside because of the success of the Apollo program. And right. suddenly when Apollo is not the success that everyone wanted it to be in this series from mm -hmm. mankind, all those things that we were willing to overlook about this person royal right up to the fore. Right uh, up to the front page, right on the front page. And yep. That's and was the boy. most right. <laughs> and that was so captivating to see that shift in history of how that road went. But just not to get into spoilers, we highly recommend you watch at least the pilot episode of this show. Apple is offering maybe, a seven maybe day... that's what should be set up first. <laughs> yeah. I think that Apple offers a one week trial. So if you if you sign up after listening to this podcast, you can probably catch like three to four episodes of it during that trial. So yeah, overall, I'm enjoying it. We're going to continue watching it. Chris and I will do another podcast about the show when we complete it because it's not that long. So it'll be, you know, a month or two. We'll we'll do another episode, talk about the entire series. But Chris, you're also a screenwriter apart from being a space journalist. Indeed. Where would you have taken that? Let's say you were given this premise. Okay, the Russians just landed on the moon. Where do you take the story from there? Yeah, so my thing would be what I think would be a really good exploration, and it's something they are touching upon in, in the series so far, but if the roles were reversed, like completely reversed from reality, right? Like that the Soviet N1 rocket worked perfectly. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the premise work, we should which it, it, which it we didn't. should yeah we should yeah. say that that is apart from the premise the reason why the russians are able to do so is because the n1 actually works in this universe right right yeah. right okay. versus we should put the, that out or there. It, versus yeah. in reality it flew four times and it failed four times failed four um, times okay but but you know what if this what if that had been the saturn five what if the saturn five had blown up shortly after liftoff on apollo four because coming at the same time as the Vietnam War was going on, but before it reached, well, the end, not the climax, yeah. but the end of it, you know, the space program was a way for the United States to forget a lot of the things that it didn't really want to be remembering right. or thinking about in the first place. 
And if you remove that element from society, you have huge changes and huge challenges to, to overcome. And that's what I would be more interested in seeing is, and where I might have personally taken this if, if handed the premise, is how do the failure, the, the hypothetical failures of the Apollo program expose what was really happening in American society at the point and world culture? And if America had to have a reckoning that it was not the superpower that it thought it was. Just to add on to that, this year, we had such a long, drawn-out celebration for the Apollo 50th. Yeah. I was in D.C. They projected the launch on the Washington Monument. There was a whole celebration at Kennedy. It was just like a year-long national celebration, even international celebration, I would say. But to think... You know, we did that at 10 years. We did that at 25 years. We do it every year. We celebrate everything every year, I want to say. But we really went hard with it with the Apollo 50th this year. And just imagine removing all of that from society because it never happened. Well, or or what I would say is is the flip side of that, right? The The one singular event that the world has all sat down as one to watch was the Apollo 11 landing on the moon. Right. And if that wouldn't have been Apollo 11, if it would have been the first Soviet mission, the world still would have stopped, mm -hmm. right? The world still would have turned its eyes to the moon to watch the, the show Soviet sort Union of succeed. portrayed that. The, the show yeah. sort of portrayed that, yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but, but if you think about that and, and you think about the, the entire global geopolitical structure and what happened, you know, because this was only 24 years after the end of World War II. Right. You know, if you think about how the global political and power structure shifted in that moment that the world stopped to watch something good done by the united states and if you flip that mm -hmm. there's some pretty intriguing possibilities that you could play out on the political stage of how the u.s might have been different how the soviet union might have been different would that have been enough to keep the soviet union together my direction where i would have taken the story is completely from the soviet side Mm -hmm. And in the Soviet Union would never collapse. And and I think the moon landing and their push to be more progressive in, in the public eye changes there and changes their hearts. I think that, you know, I, I think that space, we, I mean, we all have this, some form of this philosophy that space makes people better. It makes the world better. It makes humans better. We apply words to it like the overview effect and the orbital effect and things like that. But if the Russians had landed, or the, I should say, if the Soviets had landed on the moon first and they continued their moon program and they built a base, their society would have eventually been very different from the one that we saw in our in our universe. I, I, I think you're right. And, and you know, just on the, on the very basic level of that, from what led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, if there was an entire space program and sustainable base that was a part of that, that was a part of the Soviet economy, the, the economic situation would have been very different throughout the Soviet Union Think as well. It. Instead of America having companies like Lockheed and Boeing and becoming the big global defense contractors, you'd have some Russian companies coming up under behind the space program there, especially if you're landing on the moon. They need to contract out those projects to somebody just like NASA had to. 
you know? Exactly. And, and, you know, there's a fascinating documentary. It has nothing to do actually with For All Mankind, but it's in, it's in some way connected to it in retrospect. And it's, it's called Cosmodrome and it's on Netflix. And I encourage people to really go watch this because it's Mm -hmm. all about, even with the failures of the N1 rocket and the Soviet moon rocket and the sort of sputtering space program that they had after that as they moved into the Salyut space stations and Mir before the collapse of the Soviet Union, is when the Soviet Union collapsed, American scientists and rocket engineers heard rumblings of this incredibly efficient engine that the Soviets had designed, a closed loop engine which had never before worked and that Mm -hmm. American scientists could not figure out how to build. They knew it was theoretically possible, but they couldn't figure out how to do it. And there were rumblings that the Soviets had actually done it. But as everything collapsed and crumbled inward, there was no market for it. And lo and behold, they did do it. And these were the precursor engines to the RD-180 used on the Atlas V today and Mm -hmm. the RD-181 used on the Antares rocket today. Yeah, And And it is a fascinating look to see of what could have propelled part of a Soviet economy had things just been a little bit different, had their moon program worked. Yeah, the RD-180 engine has been a topic of controversy for the last few years, especially it being such an important part of our national security apparatus, this Russian-built engine. And ULA still has a bunch of missions that they have to fly these on. And I don't know, Chris, what's the, you know, obviously the BE-4 is supposed to be a replacement and a bunch of other engines. But the point Chris is trying to make is, what would have happened if the N1 actually worked? Would the Russians have even sold us the RD-180? You know, that's another well, thing. Well, probably not, because the RD-180 was not actually sold or, or really developed until after the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm-hmm. And, and, they and needed it was to. Russia yeah. and, and yeah. Energomish that they were dealing with at that point. So right. the Soviet you know, Union it, would never have done very that. Different. Yeah, they would have never done that. So, yeah, it's interesting to think the different ways they could have went with that story. I do think For All Mankind is a pretty good one. Oh, it is. And and I should say, I think in all fairness, this is not a a slight at at Ron. I mean, certainly not at Ron, who's Mm -hmm. like a god to the science fiction viewer. But I think one thing to keep in mind as as we talk about these things is the production timeline, right? That this, the the entire season that's now coming out until mid-December, all 10 episodes of it, were written, shot, and completed before the Chernobyl miniseries aired Mm -hmm. on HBO. And, and that Chernobyl was such a game changer, I feel, in how we look back at periods of history, specifically when the Soviet Union existed, right. because it was told entirely from the Soviet perspective. And you gained that element of empathy that's missing when the United States usually looks back and talks about the Soviet Union as the enemy, right? And it's easy in that moment to forget that these are people. Right. It's very humanizing. And I think I love Chernobyl for that reason. And Chris, while we're talking about Chernobyl, let's, I'll let you tell the story, how they incorporated space exploration into that crisis. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) I love this story. This was a moment when I have these moments every once in a while where I'm watching something and my mind will think something and a character will say it Uh at the same moment. And I'll be like, wait, 
Did they say that or was that in my med? I got to go back. I got to go back. One was when Ensign Tilly swore and said the F word on Star Trek Discovery for the first time, right mm-hmm. where in my oh, head, yeah. I was going, that's fucking awesome. And then she said it. And I'm like, wait, wait, did she say it? Like, but, and this is real. And this right. is what they really tried. My favorite Chernobyl part of the show. When they were faced with this daunting task of having to shove the radioactive material that would kill you flat in under three minutes how do you scrape all that off the roof so you can put the tomb and the sarcophagus over chernobyl and what they tried to do was take one of the lunacod lunar rovers from the soviet space program that they had in storage and never used and put it up there and use it to shove this radioactive material off because it had to have been built to withstand radiation incoming from the sun when it was no longer inside earth's protective radiation bands and it failed instantly it didn't work i was gonna say I mean, it, didn't work. Yeah, it was it not powerful instantly. enough yeah yeah nope <laughs> but that was though a wonderful example of how they had to think of just outside the box and space came in as this potential savior but in the same way that the n1 rocket didn't work this didn't work and you know that lunacud rover could not be the savior of Chernobyl. Wow, such an interesting connection there. So Chris, we're going to continue watching this show for all mankind and we'll reconvene on it when we're both done, whenever that is. Might be a month or two from now. But you, we have a couple of premieres coming up, which we'll get to. But I want to yeah. touch on a couple of things before we get to that. I screened, <laughs> I screened because it's like the fancier term. <laughs> I laid in bed and I watched on my laptop The Mandalorian <laughs> on Apple TV Plus. I'm a big Star Wars fan. I have been really conflicted about the last six movies, I guess. I don't know. Our friend Amy told me a great joke yesterday or earlier this week at the SpaceX launch where someone was talking about, oh, all the Star Trek versus Star Wars. And you know, that whole tired trope and everything like that. Right. And the punchline to the joke was, well, at least Star Trek fans don't hate six of their nine movies. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so Amy Thompson, who made this comment, is a super cluster contributor and one of the best space reporters out there. Her and I are in a constant war over whether if Interstellar is good or not. She hates it. So, you know, Amy refuses to come onto the podcast. I'm calling her out right now. She won't argue with me on this podcast about that film. I've invited her on. I'm calling her out right now. And Amy, if you're listening to this, how dare you? And in all fairness, I am a fan of both Star Trek and Star Wars. I love Star Wars as well. But I have not... I am so far behind on all of my watching that I have not subscribed to Disney Plus yet, so I have not seen The Mandalorian. So, Rob, so, yeah. tell and, uh, me your thoughts. The Mandalorian does not seem to exist anywhere near this core Skywalker saga, which is really great and mm-hmm. really refreshing. I won't spoil anything because it just came out yesterday. I know a lot of people haven't seen it. A lot of people have to sign up for Disney Plus and all that. But I will say this, and this is me, a Star Wars, a hardcore Star Wars fan. I have not seen this kind of Star Wars since A New Hope. Mm. I liked Rogue One. I think Rogue One was in the spirit of that like ground war sort of, you know, individuals in the galaxy making this sacrifice. It was a really cool story. But the, the desolation of A New Hope, this like... You know, you're on Tatooine and you're, you're in this far off land. It's very mystical. And the new Clone Wars trilogy is like the force is everywhere. This lightsaber's flying in your face and just everything is everywhere. The Mandalorian, it's very 
very subtle. There's not a million things for you to unpack. There's a very singular story. It's very, you know, slow in the way that they introduce you to the characters and the universe and kind of reintroduce you to Star Wars. That's what it felt like to me. This show was taking its time. It's really focusing on really smaller elements and making those elements really good. The production quality is super high because they're not having to do CGI every corner and pack the the frame with a million different monsters mm. and stormtroopers mm-hmm. and a million different things. The show is high quality and the storytelling is very engrossing and I'm just I'm loving it. I can I watched it twice back to back and you can tell this is something very unique and very new and the music is incredible i'm i'm really bad at naming composers names but next time we talk about this we'll talk about the music chris i you got to get on it man good <laughs> i i will i will i think what you said there is really indicative of where entertainment has gone where what we want now are the six seven you know ten hour movies broken up into hour-long chunks that streaming right. services allow us to have because of the depth that you're able to go right mm-hmm. i'm i'm sure when it's when the first season of mandalorian is done right you could look at that and say well they in the olden days it was star wars they may have tried to make a movie out of this and it wouldn't have right. been anywhere near as good because of the depth you're able to go into with series and and i think that's a lot of what people want and i think this was a brilliant move for the star wars franchise to start in the quote-unquote television realm with what television Mm -hmm. has become. Yeah, uh, let's slow it down a little bit. huge market for that, yeah. Yeah. And I think Bob Iger said in a recent interview, he's like, we went too fast with these Disney films. They did. And it's a Lucasfilm issue because obviously Marvel is like churning them out like butter. But Lucasfilm... They're dealing with one set of characters in one one universe. Even though it's the Star Wars universe, when you think about the components of the universe, it's much smaller than Star Trek and much less to work with. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's an opera. You see, I see Star Trek as like a, it's a science fiction show, but Star Wars is a space opera. It's very in tune with a very small group of people and one set story, one legacy. So having to make stories around that one thing has led to failure. Like, for instance, someone had the really dumb idea of recasting Han Solo and doing a Han Solo movie. It's like, you don't, when you're operating like that, like, you're not thinking straight. And I think that Disney's realizing, hey, we need to slow this down and just, like, really focus on how these stories are going to emerge. And they have this new platform, which is great. So that's been my experience and Chris's experience with these new streaming services this week. But before we you, oh, uh, I want to say one, I want to say one thing before we mm-hmm. I know what you want to talk about next, but I want to mm-hmm. say one thing to this is you know what? I think back to what my mom has told me about being a fan of the original Star Trek and watching it every week when it aired on CBS right. and how she was made fun of for liking Star Trek. I think back to my childhood and how I was made fun of because I liked science fiction. And I was a Star Trek fan and a Star Wars fan. And I think back to all of that. And what is driving the main streaming services right now? You have Star Trek driving CBS All Access. You have Mm -hmm. Star Wars driving Disney. Mm -hmm. You have, I mean, man, there's a a series. For All Mankind is the first flagship show. Right, as the flagship shows Mm -hmm. launching these things, you have... Lost in Space on Netflix, you have The Expanse. You know, like, if you would have told little me that 
what would drive these things to success were science fiction shows. I wouldn't have believed you, but that's the I know. era we're in now. Right. And, yeah. and that can be said for comic books as well, because I grew up yes. loving comic books and superheroes. And now that's what everyone loves. It's a, such a crazy change. But Chris, before we leave the show, you have two updates for us on when The Expanse is coming out and when Lost in Space is coming out. I'm thinking you and I are going to have to do a separate episode about those two shows. So yes. why not just drop the premiere dates for those shows for our listeners, and then we can dive into them in the yes. next episode. So as if, just in case December wasn't already crazy enough for I all know. our space plans with SpaceX's CRS-19, JCSAT-18, mm. and in-flight abort, and the orbital flight test of Starliner all launching from Cape Canaveral in December, we have the entire fourth season, or we have the fourth season of The Expanse hitting Amazon Prime on December 13th. Uh -huh. And for those of you who were looking for something to do over the end of your holiday, we have the second season of Lost in Space dropping on Netflix on December 24th. So Sweet. I know what do. I'll be doing when I'm yeah. not at the Space Center for a launch. <laughs> and just a little preview on that, I will be heading down to December, in December, mid-December, and just staying down at Cape for two weeks. So I'll, Chris and I will be recording probably our last episode of Last Week in Space down at Cape Canaveral, which is always fun. And yeah, we'll keep track of these television shows and we'll have another episode about them. Chris, I think we're going to have to call this episode Last Week in Fake Space. Ooh. Well, we'll have to come. We'll have to brand it somehow. Yes. Uh, because we tell people these are news updates and we're talking about Interstellar. So anyway, Chris, thank you for being on. And on next week's episode, we'll get back to space business and all the updates coming up because we'll have a clearer idea of how December will look in terms of rocket launches. Thanks, Chris. And thank, thank you, you for all our listeners for tuning in again. Bye-bye.